chapter 3, starting in verse 21, we just got past where John is preaching to the people and he's, he's challenging them to uh, bear fruits that are worthy of repentance. Um, he tells them, look, there is a judgment to come. They need to repent. And we talked about repentance and the key to repentance. And that, that repentance is so important. It's, it's Salvation is not a matter of you know, saying this perfect prayer, it's a matter of repenting. It's a, it's a matter of a change of mind and a change of heart, and a cha- which ultimately leads to a change of behavior and a change of lifestyle. And so now we get to the point where Jesus is going to be baptized by John. And we kind of touched on it a little bit last week, um, but we're going to really dive in this morning. We're going to be in verses 21 through the rest of the chapter, but mainly verses 21 and 22 because the rest of the chapter is a genealogy, and I figured you guys would be bored by that, right? No? Okay. Thanks for the interaction, guys. I feel, I feel good. All right, so in verse 21 and verse 22, we're going to look at four main points, okay? Let's go ahead and read it. It says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, In you I am well pleased. And one of the things that we've learned as we're leading up to this section in chapter 3, one of the things we've learned in chapter 3 is that baptism means an immersion, right? And when John baptized, he baptized them in the water. And we, some of you partook in baptism a couple weeks ago. A lot of you were there. A lot of you have already been baptized. And we know that baptism is not a means of salvation, right? It is a, 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 um, it comes from salvation, Right? Just like our good works, it comes from our salvation from God. And it's a proclamation that I, what God has done on in the inside of me, now I reveal it on the outside. Right? I have now been dunked in the water, I come out. It's not that we become cleansed, it's that God has already cleansed us, and it's a symbol of that. Because we need to be cleansed, right? Because we're broken, we're dirty, we have fallen short. And Jesus has now made us whole, he has made us clean, he has made us a new creation, right? It's not the baptism that does it, it's Jesus who does it. And that's really important for us to understand. I mean, that's, it seems simple, but a lot of people get that wrong. And there's many different religions that believe that. And, and when you have, you know, that doctrine wrong, you have a bunch of other things that are wrong that come after that. And so we understand that we're sinners and that we're only saved by grace through faith through the work of Jesus Christ. So John's baptizing all these people in the water, and then John tells everyone that Jesus is going to come baptizing, right? But he says he's going to do it a different way. And what does he say? He's not going to baptize with water. He's going to baptize with what? We talked about this last week. The Holy Spirit and fire, right? We talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how there's three works of the Holy Spirit. There's where the Holy Spirit comes near us, right, before we're born again, before we repent, before Jesus redeems us and saves us. He comes near to us, and he knocks on our hearts, and he reveals to us who God is. But he's also convicting us as he's revealing who God is, because as we know who God is, we realize who we are. And so we're convicted of our sin, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then when we're born again, we receive the Holy Spirit. We see that in the Gospels. We see that all throughout the New Testament. But then there's another work of the Holy Spirit where he doesn't just come in us, he comes upon us. We are immersed in the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may be wondering, well, how do, how do we get to that? Well, we see in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 1, 
that Jesus promised the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that it's different than the seal and the giving of the Holy Spirit at salvation. Because we need the dunamis power, that's what it says in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit to do the ministry of God. Right? This is the power that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it, is, it can be simultaneous with salvation or it can be separate from salvation. And so we see that Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And we see in the Gospels, before Jesus even leaves, that he, give, he breathes onto the disciples, and then he gives them the Holy Spirit. But then they get the Holy Spirit again through the baptism. That's how we see that it's two separate, distinct things. Because they don't need it twice. They don't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit twice, because they were already filled with the Holy Spirit, and the second time they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. We see that in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. But he also comes to baptize in fire, and we talked about how that's the righteous judgment of God, and that there will be a judging from God based on, based on uh, our works, based on whether it's our works, because our works lead to the wrath of God, right, because they, they amount to nothing, or we'll be either judged on Jesus's work, which means that we do not receive the wrath of God, Jesus has received it for us. So John baptizes with water. Jesus is going to come baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But now we see Jesus being baptized in water by John. And we've already understood that the baptism of water is for those who have repented and been born again. Jesus has cleansed. There's been a regeneration, right? Well, Jesus doesn't need that, correct? Like Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed. Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven. Jesus is, you know, the old man is not put away with Jesus, and now he's a new man, like we are. So why is Jesus being baptized? I mean, he's the only one that doesn't need to be baptized, correct? Because he's perfect. So why does Jesus get baptized? It's a good question to ask, right? It's a good question. Well, four things. One, he relates to us by doing it. Jesus relates to us. And if you've grown up in church, you might have heard this over and over again, and at some point, it really has no effect on you because you've heard it too much. But that's amazing. That Jesus, the Son of God, can relate to us, the created being who has disobeyed him in his law, has rejected him, has turned from his ways and followed our own ways. And we've fallen short. And yet he's decided, I love you, and I'm going to relate to you. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever gone through something and you try to share, some, share, share it with someone and they've never gone through that same thing, sometimes it's either hard to share with them or to even take some advice from them because they've never gone through this, a similar situation, right? Am, am I the only one? It's like, well, y- you, can't, you don't really understand because you haven't, you haven't gone through that. You can't relate. And so it's nice to find people who relate to certain circumstances that you have gone through. And now we have a God who can relate to us in every single circumstance. Every single one. I mean, that's amazing. We have a God that loves us so much and cares for us so much that he wanted to relate with us. And so he gets baptized so that he can relate with us as sinners. It's amazing. He wanted to identify himself with sinful man. And it's the same heart that Jesus had when he went on the cross. He identified as a sinful man. 
says, he who had no sin became sin for us, right? That he became our sin for us. There's a relatability there. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You, if, if you've studied up or maybe if you grew up in a different religion, um, you have heard of the other supposed gods. I'm, I'm, when I say other gods, just understand that I'm trying to reference to them, not give them any type of deity, okay? Because, because they're not. They're nothing. If anything, they're just a word that's coming out of my mouth. So when I reference other gods, understand that. Any other god that you see in any other religion has no relatability with mankind, right? Has no relatability that they are, you know, superior, which would make sense because they're God. I mean, God is superior to us, but he also became one of us. I mean, that's very unique to Christianity. That's very unique to what the Bible tells us and any other religious book may tell you, that Jesus, the Son of God, dwelt among us. That's what John chapter 1, verse 14 said. He dwelt among us, amongst his creation. That, I mean, that's how much that he loved us. And it was so crazy that even when he dwelt among us, his creation didn't even recognize him, right? And even when it was made known that he was the Son of God, they still even rejected him. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm prideful enough to where, like, I probably wouldn't put myself in that position. But that is the humility that we have in the God that we serve. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says this, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And listen, when Jesus came to become a man, it's not even like he came to become the best of men, right? In the sense of like, he wasn't born into like a royal line. Oh, he was, wow. <laughs> David's royal line. He wasn't born into like, um, you know, like in some type of, you know, temple. And he was born in a manger, right? We, you get what I'm saying? He wasn't born into a rich family. You know, he wasn't born... Uh, into a king at that time, right? He wasn't born, um, I mean, he was born into a poor family, to a teenage girl, to a, a, a man and a woman who were only betrothed, right? Like, he completely relates to us in every sense of the word. He took the form of a bondservant. I mean, he was lowly, he was meek, he was humble. It says, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of, of men. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Do you see the humility of our Lord? I look in this room and I, I even just within this room there's so much pride, me included. So much pride and, and so much pride that Jesus, look, Jesus it says became lower than even the angels. When I read that, I was like, man, is that even true? Well, it's in the Bible, so it is. I was like, that's amazing. And here we are as teenagers. And I say this all the time because it's, 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 it's never not true. In the all, the all the years that I've done this, every year that you get older, you think you're better than the, other, the younger kid than you. And that's true for every single kid in here. 
some of you are more humble in it, a lot more humble than other others. Oh man, I made it to ninth grade. <laughs> Stupid eighth graders, seventh graders, sixth graders. What do they know? They're they're so they're so ignorant. They're so dumb. They still like to play, you know, whatever. Then you get into the older years of you know tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. And I've got so many kids who are your age who are over there because they think that they're too old for this, that this is beneath them for many different reasons. And, and that doesn't equate to all of them. There's different reasons. But there's many of them that have that type of attitude. Some are just scared. Some are nervous. Some have never been in this type of setting. Some like to be with their mom and dad for the entirety of their life, which is fine, right? But even we experience that in here, and I experienced it when I was old, when I was growing up too, that we, we felt like those who were younger than us were beneath us. And that's just one example with just age. We think that with a ton of other things, based on how somebody dresses, based on some, how somebody looks, based on somebody's height, right? We think that we are above others, or sometimes we think we're beneath. And it's all based on our pride. And Jesus rid of his pride in humility it says in hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 that he was made a little lower than the angels just a little bit lower well why let's look at it for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of god might taste death for everyone it, th this verse shows us that that jesus was deity that he was god but at the same time, he was man, and he was able to taste death, and he was made a little bit lower than the angels. God humbled himself and became like us. That's not even just like a, hey, I can relate to that. that that's a good application. Let me humble myself. There's no application here for you for that. This is all about Jesus. This is about you understanding the character of your God, that he humbled himself to the point that he became a bondservant, that he became in the likeness of men, that he dwelt among us, that he became a little bit lower than the angels for our benefit, to relate to us and to be able to die. Because only a man could die. God cannot, right? But a man can, can, and Jesus became a man. And it was a man who was to receive the punishment that men caused, right? It was men women, when I say men, humankind, that fell short, that disobeyed God's law, and they were due the wrath of God, and so Jesus became a man to take our place. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and this is all in the, still in the same point that Jesus can relate to us. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus himself, he felt every single thing, every emotion that we have ever gone through. And I would even say, greater than what we have ever gone through. God himself turned his back on him and poured his wrath out on his only begotten son. Do you know why it's, why, probably the emotions and the feeling were greater in Jesus than us. Because really, everything that happens to us, we kind of deserve, right? We, we deserve it. Jesus deserved nothing. 
I've never been punished wrongly, right? Like, I, I, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man, so I, I really deserve any type of punishment. With Jesus, he deserved no bad and no wrong, and yet he did. He was mistreated so much on this earth, and yet even more so than that, God poured his wrath out on him even when he did not deserve it. So I imagine, you know, what he had gone through. We we see, you know, the night before his crucifixion when he's praying to God that he's praying so hard that he, he's sweating drops of blood, right? Imagine the emotions and the things that are going in into what he's feeling leading up to that night. So when I have pain, when I'm scared, when I'm depressed, Jesus relates to me. When I am weak, he relates to me, right? He can relate. As a God, he can relate to me. That's, that's amazing, Remember, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That's the first point that we get in these two verses, is that Jesus relates to us. God relates to you. The second point that we see in these two verses is that our identity is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And that's important. And that's, that's not something like, oh, man, that's my identity now. No, like, dude, that's your identity. That's a great thing. We try to come up with our own identities. We try to, have you guys ever heard the expression, I try to, I'm try, you know, I just need to find myself. And I've always wanted to ask people, and I have one time. I'm like, what, what do you mean? It's just a thing we say, and we don't even really know what we, we mean when we say it. Ah, I just need to find myself. What, what, what you want to? not work, you want to take a break and relax, right? And so we try to conjure up different identities based on, you know, how we dress, the things that we like, and I think that's great. We all have different personalities. I love that. I love that we're, we're, we're unified because of the Holy Spirit, but we're all different. We're all distinct. God has given us different gifts. We all look different. We all have different, uh, you know, likes and dislikes. I mean, that's the great thing about America and, and capitalism is that we all have so many different likes. Like, look at all the different sodas we have, right? If we all liked one soda, there'd only be one soda. But thankfully, some of you like Dr. Pepper and some of you like Sprite. So we get a variety of things, not just soda, but a ton of things, right? We're, we're, we're different in that sense. We have different personalities, and I love that. But when it comes to us as followers of Jesus, our one and true identity is found in Jesus alone. It's not, in, uh, you know, I'm an artist, I'm this, I'm that. Maybe that's part of your personality, but your identity is G in Jesus, and it should be in Jesus alone. And because of our identity in Jesus, we have been made right. We have been made right. We have been made whole. We are justified. We are made right because of Jesus alone. And how do we get to that? Well, look at this. In... Verse 22 of Luke, chapter 3. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and a voice comes from heaven. And we see, actually, from Mark and John, that the voice is not just some guy behind a rock, you know, shouting it out. It's Jesus, or, I mean, it's God, the Father, speaking to his son, Jesus. And he says this, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. What 
has Jesus done to this point to please the Father? Think about it. Can't think of anything? That might be your answer. You know, many times we get this, we struggle with trying to be right with God. One day you feel like you're, you're, you and God are good. One day you feel like you and God are not good, that you're right with him, that you're wrong with him. We try to please him. We try to clean ourselves up before we come to him. And one of the things that we need to understand is that what we do doesn't change how God feels about us. Like, our behavior doesn't change our standing with God. It was actually just Jesus' perfect work that secured it. So in a sense, it's like this. It's Father's Day, right? Majority of us have fathers in this room. And if you don't, you have an even better father in Jesus, right? But a father or a parent or a mother, just anybody, a guardian, there's this love that we have for our kids, regardless of what they do or not, right? Like, whatever my kids do, I will always love them, good or bad, or if they did nothing. I'll love them. That's just what's instilled in me from God. And my love for them is imperfect. And God's love for us is perfect. And he loves us. Listen, there's a couple of verses I want to read to you. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So when, when, was God, when did God love us? Not only when we did nothing, but when we did the worst of things, right? When we were sinners, when we were enemies with him. 1 John 4.10 says this, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the only reason that we are able to love him back is because he first loved us. So what I'm trying to get at is that God loves you not based on what you have done. Okay? Not based on what you have done. And when we stand before God and he judges us, he's not even going to judge us based on our works. He's going to be judging us based on Jesus' work that I am made right with God because of my identity in Jesus. Jesus did nothing, and God was pleased with him because he was his son. He was his beloved son. God is pleased with me, not because, you know, I did all this missions work and all this stuff, which is great things, which, is, which, is, which should stem from our love from God, but he's pleased with me and he loves me because I am found right because of Jesus. I love that, because many times we, we feel like we're not in good standing or this or that, but if I've been born again, I, I have the righteousness of Jesus on me. And so there's no trying to make myself right or this or that. I am right because of Jesus. There's two key points of the Christian doctrine of justification that we have to understand. Listen, as one is that you are forgiven. If you have repented, if you ask for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And once that has happened, you are forgiven. You are pardoned of your sins of the past, the present, and the future. And now, I don't need to get into all this, but we still need to repent of our sins and seek forgiveness because 
If we don't, then we lose separation with our relationship with God. But our relationship with God is, is never broken, right? Once we are forgiven, our relationship is made whole with God. And so all the guilt that we deserve is now gone, right? The verdict is we are free. Jesus was punished as guilty in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So once we understand that I am made right because of Jesus, that changes our whole perspective of Christianity and my life moving forward. I'm now loving God. I'm now doing all these works based on the righteousness of Jesus and not me trying to please God. Right? It's that God has loved me. Wow, he loves me. And because he loves me, now I want to obey. Now I want to get to know him more. And the only way I can love him is because he first loved me. So one, understand that you are forgiven. And two, Jesus' righteousness was credited or given to you. Okay? Think of it like this way. You guys are in school. You got report cards. Um, You know, if you try to live up to God's standard what do you think your score on your report card would be? Zero to 100. Zero, right? And then it's not even like, oh, you get a one, you get a five, you get a seven, and nobody ever reaches 100. No, it's all zeros, right? You have fallen short. James 2.10 says this, for, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. So we all have a zero on our report card. And so when I try to bring, bring my report card, you know, to my parent, they're going to see a zero because I can't achieve anything higher than a zero. But when I'm born again and I'm accepted into the family of God, Jesus' righteousness is credited to me. In a sense, his, his report card is now credited to me. And his report card is 100. It's perfect. So now I stand before my parents, I stand before God, and I show him my 100. And it's not based on anything I've done. It's based on everything that Jesus has done. And now because I'm working from that point on that I'm forgiven and I have the righteousness of Jesus, then I can do the works of God. Then I can, you know, love my neighbor. Then I can do this. Then I can do that. But if we're working off the foundation of I'm trying to please God based on my own works and based on my own merits, we're going to continually fail and feel like we're never near God. There's, There's something off. And so without even doing anything, God speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. I love that. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says this, and it, it guarantees our unshakable standing with God. It says in verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That if Jesus' righteousness has been given to me and credited to me. Understand that it can never be taken back. I can never lose it. That's a beautiful thing. And that's another unique thing about Christianity. The third point, and I'm going to get through these quickly. So the first two points, one was what? He relates to us. Two is that our identity is found in Jesus and Jesus alone and, we're, and because of that, we are made right uh, by Jesus and Jesus alone. The third point is that we cannot do ministry without the Spirit. 
that the ministry of God begins with the Spirit of God. And we see this. Remember, Jesus hasn't done anything. He hasn't even started his ministry. And what we're going to see as we read further that Jesus is about 30 years old. So from, you know, from when he was born to about 30 years old, we find out that he was a carpenter, but he hasn't done any ministry, the ministry that God has sent him to earth to do. He hasn't started yet. And the one thing he needed to do ministry was the Holy Spirit in the same way that we need the Holy Spirit to do any type of meaningful ministry. It says in verse 22 that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. Usually a dove in the Bible is a symbol and representation of the Holy Spirit. And so John and John the Baptist, he, it's written from his perspective in John chapter 1, verses 32 and 34, uh, of how he saw the Holy Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It says in verse 32, John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So ministry begins with the Spirit. We see that this is fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Write that down because I'm not going to read it. I don't have time. Isaiah 61, 1. It's the Holy Spirit in us that qualifies us and equips us to do any type of the work of God, any work of God, any of it. And if when we look at the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sometimes we think, okay, the Holy Spirit is needed to do what I'm doing up here. You're right, but that's not the only thing the Holy Spirit, that's the, not the only work of God that the Holy Spirit does for man. You look in the Old Testament and you see that the Holy Spirit was needed for people to be artisans, to knit to sew, to put things together. If you guys remember, as we were studying through Exodus, when they were building the tabernacle, it says there were some men who were filled with the Holy Spirit to do those, those works. And so the Holy Spirit isn't just confined to, you know, the type of ministry that we always think, evangelism, preaching, worship. It goes beyond that. It's needed for every type of ministry that we do, every type of work that we do. Because in everything we do, we can bring glory to God. Paul says that whether you eat or drink, like drinking water, eating food, you can bring glory to God. And Paul was giving us the idea that even in the mundane things, the, the everyday tasks like eating and drinking, you can bring glory to God. But it is needed that the Holy Spirit fills us, that we are equipped with the Holy Spirit to do such a work. There's many people trying to do ministry apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's sad, and it's hard. Zechariah 4, 6 says this, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So when we, when we do things for God, it's not a matter of my logic and my skill and my power and my might. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit using me. I can be the greatest speaker in the world, and I can know everything about the Bible. I can know all about theology, but it can have no effect on man's heart if the Holy Spirit's not in it. And I could be the dumbest person in the world and know nothing about the Bible except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm speaking about Paul, right? And when he spoke, he spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit, which, con which convicted men, and it brought dead men alive. And it's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not anything of us. I love that. And so we try to manufacture the Holy Spirit and 
there's two ways that we try to manufacture things. One is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. We try to ma- manufacture that. So again, we try to do things of our own strength, and we say, oh yeah, that's the Holy Spirit, when it's really not, it's just us. And then the power of the Holy Spirit, which we try to do ministry um, in the flesh. We try to do the works of God in the flesh. And so how do we, I need the Holy Spirit. Well, you know how you get the Holy Spirit? You know, one of the ways is just to pray, to ask that it's Father's Day. I wonder, did we sing good, good father? We didn't? Oh, I'm proud of our worship team. That's awesome. In Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, it says this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone, for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Has your dad ever done that? No, then he's a semi-decent father, right? And if you ask for a fish, will he give you a serpent instead of a fish? No, I mean, we have some semi-decent fathers, and some of us have some good fathers. Some of us don't have good fathers. That's not even the point of the story. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? That's actually not a bad deal. If If you then, being evil, right, all our fathers are evil. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's nice. Happy Father's Day. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, our evil fathers know how to give good gifts to us, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Think about that. So ministry begins with the Holy Spirit. And I had a funny story to read, but I don't have time for it in regards to that. Again, many times we try to manufacture the work of the Holy Spirit. You often see it in churches, um, many different churches, where we try to manufacture the Holy Spirit. I added we. Where they try to manufacture the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we feel like that the Holy Spirit is based on our emotions and our senses and this and that, when simply through prayer we can ask. And we can ask, and the Lord will give us the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing, and we'll try to shut it down here. The fourth thing that we see in these two verses is we see the triune God. Right? We see the triune God. We see the three persons in one. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity are all manifested at once. We see This is a beautiful text. This is one of the only times that we see all three together distinctly. The Holy Spirit comes in the bodily form like a dove. The voice of God the Father was heard, and the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, was baptized. We see the triune God. Now ask me, how does that work? I don't know. (laughs) You're welcome. But I believe it. We're saved by what? Yeah, here we go. Sometimes it just takes faith, right? We're not saved by grace through knowledge. We're saved by grace through faith. Verse 23, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of all these people, which I don't have time to read, but it's in there for a purpose. So I would encourage you to read it on your own time. 
But we'll jump to verse 38, since we're out of time. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, and the son of Adam, the son of God. So the very first thing we see in verse 23 is that, again, he began his, his ministry at the age of 30. Luke gives us a, a roundabout age. But it's 30 seems like a good age to start ministry. It's not the age that you have to start ministry. I just find it unique that there's some other people who started at the age of 30. Again, this isn't the formula that you've got to start ministry at age 30. Just giving you some, some ideas, some, some relatability. Genesis chapter 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he started serving Pharaoh. The Levites, we see that they don't start serving in the temple until they are 30 years old. And even David himself was 30 years old when he became king. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But really quick in verse 23, Luke says that it's interestingly enough that he says, as was supposed in regards to Jesus being the son of Joseph. Now, according to ancient custom, genealogies were almost always traced through the father and not the mother. Now, obviously, that is a huge problem when you don't have a human father, right? It's like, okay, well, how do we figure this out? Now, Luke traces the genealogy of David. As we see, we didn't read it, but he traces the genealogy of David through his son Solomon, while Matthew, we also see the genealogy of Jesus, he traces the genealogy of David through his son Solomon. So they both go back to David, but they're traced through two different sons, of David, right? Uh, again, so Matthew is through the son Solomon. Luke is through the son Nathan, okay? Now, both sons um, had Bathsheba as their mother. Now, why the two lines? We've talked about this before. Matthew gives us the genealogy of Joseph, okay? Joseph's line comes through the royal line, the king's. And Joseph's line gives us the legal claim to the throne of David. And Luke gives us the genealogy of Mary. Okay? Luke has already given us more detail about Mary by giving us the idea that he spent time with her, getting her to recollect all these events. We saw this in chapter 1 where he's like this historian, right? He does all these interviews that we suppose. And through Mary's line, also, also it comes from David, and hers is through the different son, which is Nathan, who didn't rule as king. And Mary's line points to Adam, which shows Jesus' humanity. And J Mary's line gives us the actual physical claim to the throne of David, since Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. So I know that's a lot, but mainly the main thing that we need to see here is that Jesus, his lineage goes all the way back to the very first man, which is Adam. You see that at the end of verse 38, that he, he brings it all the way back. And it's like, okay, this lineage is boring. You know, it's all these different people. We just see family after family. It's really interesting, and it's really important because it shows us a few things. One, it shows us that, and you might not think this is, like, of any importance, but that Jesus was a real person. I know that's mind-blowing, Right? Jesus was a real person. It's in history. It's recorded. It's, it's, we see it through the genealogies. And again, you might be thinking, well, yeah, so what? Jesus, we already believe that Jesus was a real person. Well, it's, it's historically, it's a fact that Jesus lived. A and there's many different scholars who agree with that. 
they just don't think that he's the son of God, right? So Jesus was a real historical person. He really did live, and we have that through the fact of a genealogy. And again, it doesn't seem like much, but it establishes his credential as a member of the human race. There was a Bible translator to a distant tribe that saved the genealogies for last. It's like, okay, well, we all think they're dumb and they're boring and they mean nothing, but they're in here for a reason. We think they're the least important part of the gospel. But when he finally finished translating it all, the tribesmen were astounded, and they told the translator, you mean to tell us that this Jesus was a real person with real ancestors? We had no idea. To understand that he was a real person, not just some fictional character, it gives Jesus credentials of having this genealogy. And he goes back all the way, Luke goes all the way back to Adam to show us that he is a member of the human race all the way back to Adam. And it all starts with the first Adam and then it, it ends with the last Adam. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Adam was the first son of God. Right? We see that at the end of verse 38. The son of Adam, the son of God. Right? He was the first son of God, but he sinned and he fell from that position. And then we get Jesus, who is truly the son of God. And he comes as the second or the last Adam to bring mankind back into relationship with God. I love that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, this afternoon. Lord, we thank you that we have a God who hears us, who relates to us, who became one of us. A God who loves us so much that we didn't even have to try to make ourselves right, that we didn't have to make you love us, that you loved us regardless, not based on anything we did, but based on who we are. And Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that you just be with us the rest of this, this day, Lord, that we would enjoy Father's Day. Lord, for those of us who, who don't have fathers in our life, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would bring us peace and comfort. Lord, that we would just find uh, joy in you and that you are a good father. Lord, I, I thank you for those of us that do have good fathers in this room. So we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.